listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This introduction is going to be brief. I've got a conversation to share with you and we're going to get to it fast. Part of the reason for that you may hear in the background, and that is I'm actually not back in Cincinnati where I usually am. I'm actually in Petaluma, California, visiting my sister-in-law with Marty. And uh, if you can't hear, they're out in the other room in this fairly small apartment that we're staying in, um, playing the ukulele and singing, uh, singing songs together. And I know I could go out there and say to them, hey, I've got a podcast to record here. This is big and important stuff. Thousands of lives are going to be touched in just a moment, and we need to have radio silence. But I'm not going to do that because this is a podcast about relationships. And those are two of the most precious people in the world to me out there. And they're singing. There's going to be ukulele music, and then I'm going to swing you into a ukulele music-free interview between me and an old friend of mine, Kate Wiebe, who uh, runs an outfit called the Institute for Collective Trauma and Growth. I don't know if you figured it out, but lately I've been trying to concentrate these episodes on relationship stuff. No politics, no esoteric art, just relationship. And I don't know, maybe this is going a little far afield. But Kate Wiebe, when I thought about talking about relationships, she has this unique angle because she does this unique work where she trains leaders how to restore things after a group, a town, a congregation, you know, a, 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 a school has gone through a terrible tragedy or some kind of terrible loss. You know, wherever there's something horrible happening in this country, I'm like, oh, Kate must be on a plane the next day because that's kind of what she and her gang do. I don't want to say it's, it's not a focused conversation, but like I'm talking with an old friend and that sort of comes out. And, and, and yet, you know, when I was talking with John, who produces this stuff about it, he was like, you know, there's some stuff there that's applicable to all of us when we're facing loss and disappointment and heartache and grief and stuff like that. So I think you're going to like it. I know you're going to like Kate. She's just, I always say there's like a secret society of truly good people in the world. And Kate is in that society and has been for as long as I've known her, which basically is since she was like about 14 years old. So there. All right. So this is me and somebody who you would never otherwise meet, but you really ought to know, Kate Wiebe, talking about relationships in the shadow of collective trauma. And uh, I hope you dig it, and I'll see you on the other side. I realized that the thing I have to do in this conversation is that since we know each other, we know each other's history. My yeah. first question is, I'm, and I'm genuinely curious, is like yeah. when people that you didn't grow up knowing uh-huh. ask you like, so what's your story? What do you do? How'd you get to, you know, like, how did you get to this place in your life? Like, how do you tell your story to somebody who doesn't know you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I would say kind of the short version is that while I was in college, I had a number of um, 
people who I was close to and also just kind of acquaintances and things, but people that I respected, you know, from afar, um, a number of, I think it was about seven marriages all broke up in those years and they were all community leaders and it was all related to burnout or addictions or, you know, some, some manner of that. And so I got to the end of college, kind of wondering about why people just really in general, why people didn't go to counseling more often. (laughs) So it wasn't a huge, um, you know, sense of a life trajectory. It was very much just a question and wanting to help, you know, wanting to help care for people in my life. And um, was your sense at that time that if some of these, if these people had gone to counseling, it might have helped them? Yes. And it, yeah, it seemed that counseling. So you were a believer, a, you were a believer in counseling at that point. I was. And I don't know why I hadn't myself been to counseling at that point. But I think just for some reason, it made sense to me. It made sense that going and talking with someone about, um, you know, what you're going through is a helpful thing. So, 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 so I can see why you're like, Hey, with, when you're in college and you're watching all these people fall apart, you're thinking like, why don't they talk to somebody? Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like that, it really helps if you talk to somebody. <laughs> why yeah. don't they talk to somebody? <laughs> exactly. What did you do? How'd you, how did you address that question? Yeah. So I, again, now looking back, realize I did something unusual and I thought, um, I'm going to go to seminary, not to become a clergy person, but to um, find out kind of what gets taught there so that I can help translate between um, mental health communities and faith-based communities and just general communities and focus my education on individual crisis at that point and really thought I would become a counselor. Um, I thought you would become a counselor. Yeah, I think most people did. <laughs> and um, I had uh, a couple of professors um, speak into my life. And mainly one of them was um, was uh, Kenda Dean, who you know, yeah. um, at Princeton. And she, she just, she was wonderful and just said that she thought I had a gift for potentially becoming a, an educator. And she said that she understood that um, I wasn't feeling that at this point. And, um, but she said, I would hate to see, to see that you wanted to do that when you were 45 or 50 and hadn't, and didn't have the degree to do it. And so it was through a series of conversations with her and several others that I ended up, um, trying for a PhD and getting into a program and, um, and it where was, was Kenda, where was Kenda when I was a young person to right. tell me to get that degree <laughs> right. so that later when my whole thing fell apart, I could be right. a teacher. Exactly. Damn it. Yeah. Damn it. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yep. Only- but that was, was that really it? She was just like, get yourself qualified now and then you yeah. can still be a counselor. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. For- exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, um, it was in my PhD studies that I started to, um, I took a course at 
Northwestern University on group and organizational dynamics. And that was the course where sort of everything clicked. And I realized you could look at groups the way that, like psychologically, the way that you can look at an individual. And, um, and I was already focused on crises. And so I was kind of naturally started to look at how do groups handle crises and what works for them, what kind of preparations are most helpful, what kind of what what process do they go through when they encounter adversity and and how do they heal from it? And um and I've been kind of studying that and and educating people on that and coaching people in that those areas ever since. That that's a good story. <laughs> No, like, you know, I went to college and saw individuals falling apart. So I went to try to figure out, you know, why, why they don't talk to people. And then in the process of learning that stuff, did you ever figure out why people don't go to counseling? Uh, yeah, there's a couple different reasons. One is, is cultural taboos, whether it's because of um, a faith background or because of a cultural family background um, that kind of a general sense of only crazy people go to counseling. Um, and then there's also kind of the other side of it that is just too busy or too, you know, surely I could kind of figure this out if I eat better or exercise or that sort of thing. It's, it's really that simple. I think so. Yeah. Okay. So like, this is good. That's good background, but probably if, if somebody isn't a huge Kate Weeby fan like I am, they're going like, <laughs> so why do we care how this woman came right, to be studying? Exactly. You know, because the, the trajectory is you study individuals in crisis and you, you sort of, and then, and then you're doing the PhD and it dawns on you that groups also experience trauma and groups yes. also experience crises and groups also break down. Yep. And, and that leads you to doing what you do now, which go ahead. Give me the, give me the elevator pitch. Just like when people say like, yeah. what do you do now? What is this thing? What do you do? Yeah. So I'm the executive director of the Institute for Collective Trauma and Growth, and we provide restorative strategies for organizational leaders to grow after collective loss. After collective loss, you, you've narrowed it down to just loss. Yeah, basically because all sorts of things can be traumatic. And what I like to say is that um, trauma is like art or beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder and it's based on what is meaningful to you. And so the depending on your circumstances, the loss of a job could be traumatic. Um, and, and it's, I... You know, I hesitate even saying that only because we have to be careful in that it's not completely relativistic and it's not like, oh, any bad thing is traumatic. It's it's based on what are the symptoms that you're experiencing. Yeah, what, so, what makes something traumatic? Yeah, and and it's hard to narrow down. No, no, that I'm asking and, you, like, what makes yeah, something know, traumatic? Right, and that, yeah, and I'm, I'm answering it because it's hard. It's been very difficult for even people who study it, you know, have studied it to the most that they can. It's difficult to narrow down. Because how you treat it depends on what you think it is. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and there's a, to the 
person who coined the term collective trauma is Kai Erickson. He's Eric Erickson's son. Eric Erickson was a prominent psychologist in the early 1900s. And um, his son went on to be a sociologist and studied a variety of disasters. And in the 1970s, he uh, went and observed the community response to um, a flood in Buffalo Creek, West Virginia. And he was in his book, um, Everything in Its Path, um, in 1976, uh, he was the one who to first say, like, wait, 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 we're not approaching this right. We're, we're not recognizing that we're talking about trauma based on the injury. And we're not recognizing um, when people and we're getting really frustrated and confused as professionals when people are appearing with traumatic symptoms. But we can't identify what the injury was, because it's not a car accident, or they didn't lose a limb in war or something like that. And so that's where all sorts of people started to recognize, um, you know, that was the trouble with diagnosing the trauma of when you grow up in a in an abusive situation as a child, or the trauma of living in a chronically stressful environment. Um, there was there was no definition. There was no that you know the insurance companies didn't have an a title or a label for that. Um, but the symptoms were all there, and and we're just starting in the last decade or two, just starting to kind of put that those pieces together. First of all, the name of your ins- organization is slightly different than it used to be. Yes, it is. Yep. And, and, and so I, li- it, I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. <laughs> well, it started as the Institute for Congregational Trauma and Growth. And that was partly because we, um, so it started very much with an entirely faith-based focus. And, um, and that was partly because those of us that started it were following the it's called the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which was a huge groundbreaking study going on in the early 2000s. And, and, um, and where schools and some other like government agencies were all getting trained in this, uh, I and some colleagues recognized that no faith leaders were getting trained in this. And and the reason this was such an important study to be aware of was it was the first study that was able to demonstrate that the stresses you experience in childhood have a direct correlation with the adult illnesses that you may get. So, Which is like diabetes. that body keeps the score thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, school teachers and administrators and, and um, you know, neighborhood clinics were all getting trained in this. Uh, but faith leaders had no, no training in this. And so I saw that as a niche and an, and an important one in terms of, I would say, as I look back on my career, I've always had an interest in what I call whole community care. And I, I think that was because of the community I grew up in, where I had all these adults who were also focused on whole community care. And, um, and so, um, it seemed to me that if we could give more faith leaders better training, it would have, you know, ripple effects throughout the community. 
Um, however, over the last several years, um, <laughs> all sorts of different organizations, camps, schools, um, yeah, just other types of nonprofits would come to us and kind of sheepishly, like we're, you know, we're not a congregation, but we think like the services you're providing are exactly what we need. Like we had a, a suicide recently, or we had um, a leader embezzle money or we, you know, and how do, how do we work through this? There doesn't seem to be anywhere to go. Cause um, that ended up being your niche. It, it ended yep, up being exactly. that like a church that had, that had had a terrible murder in it or yep. a pastor had run off with somebody or there had been a flood that wiped out a town and the church tried to help everybody. And they got like, like that was your Burned thing, out. right? Like yep. Yep. massive exactly. traumas would happen to a community and you would work with the congregational leaders. But then it turned out that, that when ma that these same kind of massive problems were hitting schools and everybody. Yes, exactly. It's so funny. Like I remember, I, I think my first sort of encounter with this was reading a book that was very popular when I was a teenager. It was called Alive. And mm. it was about this Uruguayan rugby team that was in an airplane crash in the Andes Mountains. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. And it was famous yeah. because in the end, they there, there was some eating of dead bodies to survive. Mm -hmm. But what people didn't realize unless they unless they really encountered the story was, is that people that were dying would turn to their friends and say, there's nothing to eat here. Please, when I die, please, please consume me. I want to, be, that mm -hmm. way I will live on in you. Like I want to be part of this. And, mm -hmm. and they, and the ones who survived, they all ended up living near each other. They couldn't stop being with each other. That when right. they got married, their spouses said, listen, I'm close to my husband, but like, I can never, I can never get between him and the other survivors. Like there, right. there's something there that, that no one can touch. Mm -hmm. And I realized yep. like, yeah, trauma does that, doesn't it? Yeah. And the, the tricky part is, is how do you, cause that bond really is something that can over and over again is seen as something that can help people heal and sustain them through unimaginable, um, heartache. And we can also see, and we both know of times where where it doesn't heal people and it becomes this kind of identifying all consuming i am nothing but this experience i've had and and we all kind of keep generating that feeling together i am I, so, I am a victim or even if i am a survivor yeah. like i am defined by this experience exactly exactly and so it's a it's it's an art um and well, it's difficult to, yeah. Well, I, I was also thinking like, you know, where you started was the idea of collective trauma and the idea that um, a, a group's spirit, a group can have a spirit without trauma and then it gets broken by the trauma. You know, and mm -hmm. then, then we, we quickly moved on to talking about like the, the connection that can be built on the other side of a trauma. Yeah. But I do think like, I think about couples I know that, lo that have lost a child. Yes. And sometimes that brings them together, but more often, and not because they're mad at each other, but just because 
they can't get past it or because they grieve differently or because seeing each other just brings them back to that moment. A lot of times they are their spirit, the spirit of their marriage or the spirit of their family is broken by the trauma. Yeah. And the way I view what happens in, in trauma is that, um, you're in a way you're kind of reduced to a a vulnerability that in some ways is akin to when you were an infant or a child and, you know, kids who grow up healthy have adults around them where they can, um, basically borrow steadiness, borrow health, borrow, um, resilience. yeah, Yeah, exactly. And, and that, and that's a similar kind of thing, um, appears to go on when people are healing from trauma. And and that's why a therapist can be helpful or, um, you know, good family relations or good community relations where, where you're not just with other people who also are in need of borrowing some stability. Um, so that's what I see going on when couples experience the loss of a child or something like that is that, um, unless they have, um, other family members that are coming around them or other community members who are coming around them and really kind of lending them some stability. Uh, if they're just in it by themselves, then, then that's kind of a recipe for more loss because they, they just don't have enough. They're very, it's, they're just both very vulnerable. Yeah, no, I can't tell you the number of people I've talked to recently who will tell the story of like, our family was this way and then my mother died or my father died and the whole family fell apart. Yeah. And you're like, well, yeah. if you if you were a functional family and you lose one person, like, did, did that really have to blow it all up? But But that's the thing is that that one death hurts everybody in their own way. And right. And they, they go like, well, I'll lean on my sister. And you go like, no, you can't lean on your sister. She, she's, she doesn't have it to give you. And, and, exactly. she, and so there's exactly. just this kind of deficit situation. And so it, it sounds like what you're saying is, is that somehow there has to be an outside, some outside people that come in and go like, we're going to, we're going to contain this. We're going to surround you a little bit. Yeah. And it, and it's not um, necessarily with, you know, super professional resources. Um, there's a great example here in Santa Barbara when we had, um, the, the Montecito debris flow, um, uh, that ended up, it was a flood event that ended up killing 23 people. And, um, and, uh, several people reached out to me to ask, you know, how can I help? What can I do? And, um, a local rabbi's wife reached out and, with the same question and only she added, I already have a pot of broth on the stove. I'm making chicken soup to take to my neighbors, not neighbors who had been directly affected by the flood, but who were grieving as kind of next door neighbors to the flood. And it's that kind of idea that, um, you know, she recognized the first responders are going in that, but like, you know, those of us who are even next door are grieving and we need some nourishment to, to help, um, in the days ahead. And it's that kind of thing of, you know, the lending of stability isn't just, um, professional talk therapy, but is, you know, 
uh, here's some chicken soup, literally, <laughs> and, and or here's a, a shoulder to cry on, or or we'll you know we'll watch the kids while you're just trying to you know put the pieces back together. Yeah, I, I was talking with somebody who had who had just had a, a trauma in their family, and they said, you know, it's really not helpful when somebody says, "If there's anything I can do, call me." Yep. But they said if somebody says, "Hey," Very specifically, like, how about if I come over and mow the lawn tomorrow? They're like, that meant a lot. But th this this open-ended thing where you put it on the person, like, they're never going to call you. Um, right. And it and it's, it's like a universe of, you know, it just sends survivors into this reeling, like, oh, my gosh, another decision I have to make in this place that I – like when can I, barely function. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so one of the things that I recommend is is um, either offering, just like you said, a very specific thing and just letting it be a yes or a no, um, or asking what do you need right now? And knowing that, that the answer to that question is going to change over time, but it helps, it can help a survivor orient to like, oh gosh, well, right now, you know, and it helps them realize like, oh gosh, I haven't even gone to the bathroom in the last several hours. Yeah, I like could use been, a sandwich. So, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Just one foot in front of the other. So, you know, you've defined on some level, like I, I'm the executive director of this organization that helps groups of people that are, that are recovering from, or that are trying to work through some trauma that they've experienced together. Is that a fair way of saying it? Yep, exactly. And whenever there's a famous massacre um, or mass shooting somewhere, I'm like, oh, I bet Kate's going out there because <laughs> there's some there's some church or community organization or school board that wants you to come or you and your team to come to help them figure out how to support each other or how to get support from the outside or how to support the people in their community that are most directly affected. And so I, I feel like, is that what you, would you say that that's the main thing you do is you like you educate people how to take care of each other? That's a great, yeah. Yeah. yeah you can use either, that. You, you can have that for a yeah. t-shirt. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's a great summary. It's either coaching, education, or therapeutic services is what we say. Um, because it, it kind of depends on where the leader or the staff were personally before the event and what, you know, what coping they have um, during and after. And so it may be that, um, you know, that we do an assessment and it's, oh, you all just need, you know, some referrals to some good therapists and you've got a lot of other good resources and you'll be on your way. Um, or it may be, this is a group that never conceived of themselves as ever being in. And this is less and less the case, just given all that's gone on in the last few years. But it used to be the case that many organizations we encountered, one of the big hurdles they were getting over was, this doesn't happen to them. You know, um, they were on their way somewhere. And now they've had everything torn apart and they just never imagined that. And so part of it is, is, um, educating or coaching them through that hurdle. 
And, um, and now everybody knows that it can happen to anybody. Exactly. Exactly. Which I don't know if that's, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Right. It's yeah. The, the terrain has definitely changed in just a few short years. And, it was, and what's weird is it could always happen to anybody. Right. And so people just didn't know it. Right. And part of what we're actually dealing with now is we have organizations coming to us saying, uh, we've had multiple things happen. Like we never imagined we'd have multiple things. And so, you know, for example, there's all sorts of communities on the Gulf Coast that have now had multiple hurricanes and they've had their, their property rebuilds destroyed. <laughs> you know, so they had their first facilities destroyed and then they went through a rebuild process and then that was destroyed the next year. And, um, or in Southern California, the communities that had uh, massive shooting and two fires all break out on the same day. And, um, or, you know, communities like in the Midwest with the flooding or in Northern California with the fire, um, where the entire community is destroyed and there's no, there's no going back, you know, now it's decisions of like, do we, what do we do? Do we rebuild that entire community or do we go somewhere else? So it's gotten way more complicated. Yeah. And, and that's before you get into, there might be a fire that comes through my community. Um, but the a week before the fire came through, my wife left me. Right. You know, like, exactly. and that's not on anybody's radar. So, you know, the, the, there's these individual crises that are happening in people's lives all the time anyway. And, yes. and they would get one kind of care if there hadn't been a hurricane. And I, mm -hmm. I, I got to think they're getting a whole different kind of care if there is one. Exactly. And, and that, um, and that speaks to also that going back to that point of, of trauma is in the eye of the beholder. And so part of the training that we do and that other organizations are doing now too is to say, be so careful that you don't assume what was traumatic to someone because that's exactly it. People are getting, you know, people are assuming oh, you're, you're a wreck because your fire, because your house burned down. Um, and, and what they actually say is no, my, you know, my wife left me a week ago and, um, and that that's what's more traumatic. And, and I don't, so it's, I, yeah. it's, yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you, it's just hard to name. Yeah. It's hard to name. But, but the other thing is, is that I don't think, I mean, you would know this better than most and, I might know it better than you. Um, and only because like I talk to more deconverted people than anyone you probably know. Mm -hmm. And what, yeah. what happens is, I mean, I just talked to a guy on, on the podcast, Dave Warnock. What, what ends up happening is there's a trauma where a pastor in the, uh, the pastor of his church decides that he's too independent. He's in some country church in Arkansas and the pastor throws him out of the church and tells his daughters who are married to other staff members of the church, they can't speak to him anymore. Mm. And the daughters and their husbands, they agree. And so he loses his family. Okay. And that's mm -hmm. a crisis, right? Like right. his children yeah. won't talk to him anymore. But then because of that crisis, because of that, 
he starts going like, wait a second, where is God? And he starts mm-hmm. reading and looking and thinking, and he loses his faith as a result of the crisis. Mm-hmm. But then losing your faith, that's its own crisis. Yes. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. And I encounter that all the time. Yeah. Because crises are, are often faith the shattering. time that people, yep, exactly. And so, and so then, you know, it's, it's hard. What's, what's weird is you go like a person gets cancer in some weird way and, and that sets them off on a, on a journey and they, and they end up losing their faith and you go like, wow, that's, that must make cancer even harder. And you go like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like the cancer isn't even, the cancer goes down to number two, the loss of faith for some people that that's a much more like, I just lost everything. I lost my history. I lost my family. I lost my community. Like I lost everything, you know, cancer I could have dealt with. I deal with a lot of deconverted people, but they're usually their house didn't usually just burn down or their kid didn't just get caught in a school shooting. Like, how do you mess with that faith stuff in the midst of these big collective traumas? Right. Well, definitely one of the things that has been helpful for me was kind of moving into, well, how do I help a a secular organization and, and landing on that, that aspect of um, kind of that we all have spirits and we all have spirits that can break. And, and um, I think there's some core kind of spiritual components to human experience where, for example, like with the body keeps the score. One of the things that um, is helpful for me to pay attention to is and the way I would put it is that our bodies are kind of incessant truth tellers. And so we're, we're kind of always on the lookout for ways we can not necessarily verbally, but we can express what we have lived through. And, you know, so there's an aspect of confession to that. And so what I often ask people who are not religious is what kind of, what do you do with that? How do you, where's a good resource? And, and in, in many ways, ther- therapy is the, you know, kind of the secular priest of today um, is a place. Who to can confess. you entrust with your story? Who can you, who can you confess yeah, exactly. your, your, your failures to? Yeah. And, and so that's one example. And so what I found is when people lose faith um, they ha- they really do. One of the things that will help them heal is to find a way of expression, expressing their spirituality uh, in ways that make sense to them and, and feel um, real and authentic to them. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard work um, because it's, as you know, it's, it's kind of recreating a new community. Well, and sometimes what happens is, is that somebody, the loss of faith is so is so painful. And sometimes people feel really gypped or they feel lied to or, or cheated. Like I bought yeah. into this thing and now it's you like, I see, you know, I feel like I was, I was lied to or I was deceived. Um, and so then you say to them, okay, but you still need to express, you still need to confess or you still need to be, you, yeah. you still need to um, celebrate or you still need yeah. to, um, be inspired. 
and you sort of try to bring them into an environment where that can happen. And they go like, oh, no, no, that triggers me. That reminds me of church. Mm. Oh, like this person's trying to, they'll come to a, a, an event that, that I might run. And they'll say, oh, wait a second, mm-hmm. there was emotionally resonant music. And then you told a story and people were sort of crying at the end. And, and there was a reading and they're like, ah, I, I can't be here. And you're thinking, right. oh, right. baby, you know, I hear you. But like, this is precisely the thing that you're missing because you grew up with it. Right. So it's, sometimes it's really hard because what they need is like only sort of three rose over from what they absolutely can't stand looking at. Right. Right. So one of the things that is very helpful for many people is some sort of ritual, uh, particularly around um, marker events. So one year or five years or things like that, or around birthdays or graduations or, you know, some sort of meaningful day where you're really connected to the loss. Um, there's a lot that people bring to both the experience of trauma and the process of healing. And it's, it can be really complicated. So I'm wondering like for you as a, as a human being, like as a, as a mom, as a wife, as a, as a friend, wherever there's a trouble, it feels like everybody else is running away and you're like, huh? Heading off to Las Vegas, heading over to Newtown, you know, like, you know, you, you're always, you're always moving in the direction of pain. Mm -hmm. What have you learned Mm -hmm. in, 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 in that pain that like in just in your everyday life, like what have you learned by going into all these painful situations that, that then shapes the way you live your life with the people that you live your life with that aren't necessarily always in trauma. Yeah. Um, I, I would think of myself kind of as a Sherpa along the Valley of the shadow of death. And what I learned was that one, I don't have to be afraid of that Two, It's really not just meaningful, but it really makes a difference to have people walk alongside you when you're in the shadow of death. And I have experienced that personally. And so to be able to offer that feels, you know, like giving back. Um, And I've learned that the, you know, people will talk about, you know, the big buzzwords now are preparedness and things. And, and your insurance company will tell you all about the flip chart that you have to have for your exit strategies and, um, and all that kind of stuff. And what I found is, you can, well, it's impossible to prepare for every single type of incident if you are only focused on what types of incidents can happen. Um, But you can prepare for the kind of person you want to be in an emergency. And part of that preparedness is what I've discovered is, is the real basic components of, of a good, healthy life of, um, you know, daily good hygiene, all the things you, you know, you're told good exercise, sleep, um, hydration, good eating, um, good, healthy relationships. These are the things that over and over again, um, prove to, to create resiliency. 
in people and communities. And so, um, so I think that's what I bring home from work is just leaning into how can I make this a, uh, safe and loving place for my family? And, and how is this a place that we are all kind of learning, growing together and how to do these really basic healthy practices that, that I know will help my kids when they inevitably encounter adversity throughout their life. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because it's not what I thought you would say. <laughs> I mean, that makes all the sense in the world to me. Like, yeah. you know, because it, it really does matter if you head into a crisis on a full night's sleep or not, you know, like, it, it, yeah. so, yep. so, so, I mean, it all makes sense, but where I thought you were going to go, um, is the, the Victor Frankl direction mm. because, uh-huh. you know, I, did you ever read that book? Man's Search for Meaning? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, what struck me about that was he said, like in, in that crisis situation, the people that were, that, that survived and also the people that were the most helpful to other people were people that had a strong sense of purpose. That, that, that they that mm-hmm. there was something that they were doing with their lives. They understood what their lives were about and there was something they had to get back to or there was a re they needed to treat this person a certain way because that fit into their ultimate purpose in life, which was to do this. Um, but that 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 people yeah, that and, were just kind and of and there was go ahead. there was a component that he found where for certain people the circumstances do not determine their sense of quality of life. And so it doesn't matter. Like, you know, that's that thing about um, joy is not something that you, you manufacture. You know, it's, it's a sense of, of, it doesn't matter if it's a cloudy day or not you know, whether I'm joyful or not. Yeah. That, that sort of that, that distinction between happiness, which is, I'm in good circumstances and, right. and joy, which is sort of like, I have an inner sense of who I am and where I fit into this world and what I'm doing with my life. Yeah. And like, yeah, whether it's cloudy or whether things are going well or badly, I know who I am. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so Frankel was so on that. And, and I, tend to think that this is where when I, when I'm dealing with especially deconverted Christians, but secular people in general, uh-huh. if the circumstances are good, they're like, yeah, life is great. Like you don't need God to enjoy the sun, you know, the sunset. You don't need God to enjoy a beautiful day. And, uh, and I think that's really true. <laughs> but what I find is, is that when life gets really, really hard, the, 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 the people that have a sense of, Nothing bad is happening right now, but something bad is going to. And when it does, we're the ones, we're the ones who help each other. Yeah. And I would say, I don't think it, you, I think you uh, show that more than say it, you know, that, that I think, and I think that's part, I say that from what I experienced, you know, of all those adults around me, you included, of people who were showing me all the time um, what it was to respond to people and and what it was to 
take care of themselves in a way that they could keep responding to people. Yeah. Hey, like, I, I don't want to keep you forever. Um, <laughs> is there anything I left out that you're like, dude, you really should have covered this or we, I, I, this is this thing I, I always like to say that I didn't get a chance to say. No, I think, um, I think I am definitely talking a lot these days. I'm really passionate about that communities can't are a huge part of, of the healing process that the survivors and the leaning on those who have, have may have more strength to lend out. And that, um, the communities that have been showing the most resilience are the ones that, that can come up with a creative solution together. Um, and the more that we can all kind of participate in that, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because I find myself when people talk to me about like congregation building, like, like I'm trying to help people figure out how to start these little house communities or these, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that are sort of like church for people who don't believe in God. And, um, one of the things that I don't say very often, but it's very much a part of my, my thing is like, I still believe that there's an imminent social collapse coming in the next 30 years. Like Mm. I still believe we're going to have a currency crisis or a pandemic flu or a nuclear event. Like I don't think we're going to skate through this climate change thing at all. And, Mm -hmm. and my sense is that, that these traumas are going to be, you know, more and closer together. And that, that, that building communities of people that know how to get together and re-inspire each other and, you know, raise their kids together in a sense, like those are the life preservers that you want to mount fairly close by because you're going to need them. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, it, it really is, it's very, you know, s- sometimes people say to me, like, why are you so obsessed? If, 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 if my life is going well and I don't need to be like, I'm fine. I don't need to be part of something. And I'm always like, yeah, yeah. Right now you don't. Well, and I would, Right. And I, I would even say that I wouldn't be surprised if that's somewhat of a mirage, like kind of along the lines of what you're saying, that it feels that way. It feels that way that right now you don't, but you know, one of the things that happens a lot is someone will tell me about a crisis, particularly one where maybe there's been an affair or, um, you know, there's some form of addiction or something and and one of the things I found I have to kind of is part of the coaching is um, helping them to see this has actually been going on for a long time. You just found out about it right now. And helping people kind of reorient to, oh, yeah, I was living in a way that I thought everything was fine. And it wasn't. There you have it. I don't know what you think. I would love to know what you think. You know how to tell me what you think. Send me an email. Get on the Facebook page somehow. You know, register and say like that episode was helpful for this reason or it was unhelpful for this other reason. Because like I'm kind of your surrogate. I'm kind of, I'm trying to ask the questions that you would ask if you had the privilege of talking to the people I get to talk to. All right, listen, that was a long interview. I know I should give you quotes and recommendations and and stuff. And I promise you, like when I get home and I get back in the office and I have like all the stuff in front of me, I will give you better intros and better outros. But for now, 
just know that I love having you be part of Humanize Me. And I'll see you next time on the show. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at humanize me pod on Twitter and humanize me podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search humanize me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life. Oh,